Welcome to the Insurance Brokers Podcast with your host, Sarah Myerskoff. This business podcast is for ambitious brokers determined to grow their business. Our guests are highly experienced industry experts and innovators. This is the place to leverage their success, learn how to break through barriers to growth, and discover a community of support and ideas whilst growing your business. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Insurance Brokers Podcast. Today's episode is a slightly different format to our usual, and we are really excited to be joined by a panel of fabulous people. Mike Keating from the MGAA, David Williams of AXA, and Graham McKenzie of MBL Global. Today's topic will all be around corporate social responsibility and how we as an industry can make an impact. So welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me. I am sure that uh, everybody listening will recognize names and faces and companies, so I won't do a whole big thing on introductions. But David, joining us from AXA, Mike, joining us from the MGAA, and Graham, joining us from MBL Global. I'm really grateful to have you all here. Pleasure to be here, Sarah. Good afternoon. So I'm just going to give you a bit of background about why I thought this would be um, an interesting podcast to do. There's so much happening in the news at the moment about mental health. There is so much happening in the news about corporate social responsibility. And there is so much happening in our industry, which is quite innovative. And I've had a few uh, really interesting conversations recently about new sort of uh, things being put in place to help the wider community. So I thought um, it'd be really interesting to have a conversation around corporate social responsibility from a risk management perspective. And the reason is, obviously, our industry is there at the point of a disaster. Arguably, that's why it exists. So that sort of lends itself really well to supporting uh, uh, nations globally uh, whenever there's any of these sort of big disasters. And that's why I wanted um, Graham to come on as well, because Graham, your background is uh, technical underwriting, but also particularly around this kind of space. Isn't that right? Yeah. Okay. So that's really uh, the positioning. That's why I wanted to have a chat. And um, it probably makes sense just to get an overview from you guys about what you've seen in the industry over the last few years and what you see coming in terms of corporate social responsibility, uh, either within your your, um, organizations or uh, more generally. David, do you want to jump in first? Yeah, certainly. So I suppose my experiences are, you know, currently I'm responsible for underwriting and technical services, but I ran claims for nine years. And you genuinely see our purpose, our reason for existing when you, uh, you're involved with a claims team. And it isn't just about the other financial elements. I think if you look at the movement of people between different teams, you tend to find that people who are in claims stay in claims. And I think that's because you need a particular mindset. And also you you like being honest, uh, the fact that you are able to help people. Uh, and, and certainly when we're coaching people, it's not just about, you know, processing calls, processing claims. It's not just about systems. It is trying to understand the customers. And, and initially, you do have to script it. You do have to remind, you know, new joiners that somebody's been through a particularly, you know, stressful moment um, and that we're there to assist them. And clearly, we want our customers to you know, be our customers for a long time. And, you know, claims is the opportunity to either sort of reinforce that 
or lose them forever by by handling things badly. Um, I also think we're quite fortunate within the AXA group because we have AXA Health, your PPP as was. So we have healthcare professionals within the group uh, and we we share a lot of things generally. And also, I, I think what you do within your business impacts what you do outside so we have uh, things like the, the AXA Research Fund, which we, we might come on to later, which you know, gives us access to, to expertise because we're funding it, uh, researching all sorts of areas uh, and certainly climate, life sciences, the mental health impacts of these events is, is, is part of that. But also we have been obsessed with employee well-being. Um, so within my team, I have uh, somebody who is one of what we call our mental health first aiders, and yeah, they're not trained professionals from you know a proper sort of a medical perspective, but they are members of staff, sometimes quite senior. One, yeah, you know, mine is is a direct report, so so you're very senior, relatively speaking, and they are there to try and help our. Uh, employees on an informal basis and and you know that's why we call it mental health first aiders because we're not trying to replace you know proper uh, services and facilities but but that I think helps us in terms of if we recognize that we have a responsibility to look after our employees that naturally drifts into our customers as well and I probably for an intro I've probably talked too much already so so I'll shut up then. I sound like you David. <laughs> Um, No, I think that's really interesting. And I've written a couple of things to come back to uh, that I think are really relevant. I just want to get your input, uh, Mike and Graham, as well. Mike, your background is across all different parts of the industry, isn't it? But currently, you're in a membership organisation. So if we're talking about employee welfare, or we're talking about client support, or we're talking about membership welfare... How do you sit with with what David said? Yeah, I, I don't. I, well, most surprisingly, I, I actually agree with David, which I didn't when all the time we worked together at AXA, <laughs> but that's, a, that's another sort of story. But but I, I probably come at it at sort of a different angle. So I think CSR, you know, has to be led from the top. It has to be led from board boardrooms. And it's very much sort of what I've seen that it, it, it used to be a little bit of a tick box exercise. Okay, and you know, but now you know you see that you know corporate governance and the need to have a real interactive CSR sort of policy, which is cascaded down, and therefore big organisations such as AXA, you know, and it's you know it's really encouraging to hear what David said with his examples that you know they're not only walking the walk but they're talking the talk in terms of doing it and taking that into sort of key departments you know, such as claims so that, you know, the end customer, you know, actually sort of feels the warmth and that that sort of CSR sort of responsibility from that perspective. I'm sure we'll come back to it. It'll be interesting, certainly from Graham and David's view, is to when you bring in sort of risk management, whether, you know, CSR and risk managers are actually integrated or whether they're separate, because, you know, I think that would be quite an interesting discussion to see whether they're still working in silos because you know they should be aligned in, in sort of my view but certainly sort of from a MGAA sort of uh, perspective you know we have a number of our sort of uh, as, you, as you know so sort of a number of our suppliers sort of offer sort of CFR sort of guidance or the, the themes 
you know, policies and really interactive. And I can only speak for our 160 odd members that, you know, they, they treat that enormously seriously. But again, I would have to say that I think it's something which has really taken on a high profile, but wasn't necessarily sort of, you know, enacted as serious as it maybe 10, 10 years ago. I like you've both kind of picked up on this. Corporate social responsibility is now starting, and I think COVID's got an awful lot to to say for that, to um, infiltrate into and cascade down into the actual client-facing uh, employee benefits. So it's it's almost well-being, not just to the outer world, but to your own organization, is starting to be taken much, much, much more seriously. Is there more we could do? And I imagine, Graham, you've got you've, you've got some thoughts on, on what David and, and Mike have said and, you know, what other things could be done? Well, I think there's lots that could be done. Um, I think it's all about having the, as both Mike and David have said, it's it's having the the, the management commitment to actually to get you going and, and, and doing it. And, and, I, and I have to say, you know, before we, we get into sort of anything else, you know, I'm absolutely delighted that we are having a conversation about sort of corporate social responsibility in this type of forum you know we're raising the issue and 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 particularly as far as we are concerned with the sort of the the mental health aspect of sort of CSR post post an event and I think what we see as a a sort of a, a a supplier if you like to the to the financial services industry is that because CSR has largely been sort of self-regulatory almost. You know, it's different businesses have taken a different approach to how they, to use your words, might tick the boxes. And, you know, I think some have climbed in, you know, sort of the boots and all, uh, had have appointed senior management, you know, to actually physically, you know, who are who are tasked with developing the sort of the CSR ability of, of of their institution Gallagher's would be a very really good uh, good example of that um and I think if you look across the the in, insurers MGAs UMAs globally you'll see everything from sort of philanthropy to ticker box through to uh sort of micro insurance product design right the way through to some interesting examples actually in uh, in South Africa by way of, of a couple of the larger insurers here, have have put pointsmen or traffic policemen effectively on on junctions as part of their CSR initiative to help guide traffic through you know through the busy periods. That they're trained by the police. Uh, they wear the they wear the uh, high vis jacket with their insurer logo on, and they direct the traffic every morning. They're, they're in front of thousands of people. And just, it's a great example of how corporate social responsibility dovetails into kind of brand development and extension, public awareness, and so on. So there's a number of very sort of macro, micro uh, sort of issues. And and again, in in South Africa, one of the other insurers here decided to take it upon themselves to go around and and fix all the potholes uh, in the road, you know. It's that it's and, and those are very kind of local and, and in some cases quite sort of micro initiatives. But I do think it's a it's a it's a great way that you can blend your CSR sort of your 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 want to develop corporate social responsibility 
with a with a way in which you can enhance your brand, uh, increase your reach, you know, and and do good for society. And as Sarah said, I think I think insurers insurers are fantastically placed at the point of a claim to really extend that that CSR initiative. You know, and and I was called yesterday, and I'm not sure if this is a compliment or not. I was called an ethical evangelist. Um, <laughs> So, so part of what I'm trying to drive is to drive the whole profile of CSR in in an insurance, you know, in an insurance environment. And there's a there's a saying that I've I've used on on several occasions, which is, you know, harm can never be totally washed away by money. You know, what can we do after the event to actually affect positively those people that are affected by the event and that event could be anything from wildfires to flooding to a terrorist event how can how can we as the insurer who are on site pick up the mantle and push this philosophy of development of csr so that's kind of that's my sort of that's my background as i say i, I feel a little bit sort of poacher turned gamekeeper or the other way around i'm not quite sure what it should be but um so so we're, we're we're very much in the space of pushing csr however it appears whether it's environmental uh, economic or social you know further down the track for insurers could i just pose a question to both Dave, biffy david sort of given the size of axa and, and obviously grounds do, do you feel do you feel you're sort of through through your both both your lenses especially sort of david with that the size of axa do you feel you're still in the cycle at prevention or are you actually, you know, prevention after it's happened or are you looking to predict it before it happens, you know? Yeah, so I, I think we're very much moving to uh, trying to prevent it happening in the first place, you know, ahead of the incident. You know, some of the old strap lines, we wanted to move from payer to partner because yeah. you know, we don't want our customers to be suffering and you know as, as, as graham said no no amount of money can really uh, make up for what people have had to go through so uh you're very much trying to do things in advance i mean we've got a team of you know 40 to 50 uh risk engineers who um do operate separately from the uh csr team but probably you know, their, their interaction is really strong and the, the number of interactions between CSR and uh, you know, the, the risk management team is, is probably greater than, than anything else. I also think you know, we talked about things changing. Um, we got into a situation as an industry where uh, you know, COVID happened and the vast majority of people didn't have any cover at all. And you're thinking, well, what can we do? Now, bunging money randomly clearly you know, isn't sustainable, although we've contributed to, to various funds. I think we paid a million pounds into you know, one fund that the, the ABI were organizing. We're supporting other things elsewhere in the world. But what we did as a team is we thought, what can we do with our expertise to help our customers? So, yes, there was an element in terms of what can you do to you know, extend policy cover. So allowing somebody who's just got a private car policy to be able to use that vehicle for ferrying patients around or you know, delivering prescriptions, doing shopping, things like that. Yeah, and, and, and more 
basic uh, things like empty buildings, cover extended like that, but also what we thought about is what can we do to help our customers just, just cope without they're being covered under a policy. So providing additional information, being available to offer advice. And I think that really accelerated. The other thing I, I, I was sort of holding myself back from saying at the start is I think anybody now who still sees CSR as being a tick box exercise is an idiot, frankly, because there are so many benefits. Now I've worked for AXA for forever pretty much and I've always said one of the reasons I've stayed at AXA is we try and do the right thing and what I really mean by that is I don't turn up to work and think oh my god you what's this shocking organization it's an organization who through various things are trying to help trying to make a difference and I am told that millennials who are clearly very different age group to me it's even more important to them. They they don't just want to know, you know, job title and a salary. You know, they want to be working for an organization where they can understand the strategy and see how that fits in to you know, the, the the wider environment and you know, big big global issues. I mean, we, we we always used to talk about our noble purpose. And now we're talking about trying to you make the right decisions for human advancement. I mean, yeah, we're an international group, so sometimes things get a bit you know, lost in translation. Uh, but we really genuinely want to be doing the right thing. And that, I think, enables us to attract and keep better people. And also when people are actually in doing their jobs, if they feel they're part of something you know, bigger, and that is trying to make a difference. Yeah, um, sorry, I'll, I'll probably have to yeah. sort of... You know, I think that's that's great, okay, but yep. but yep. you know, with the high course case on Supreme Court case on BI, the reputation of insurers is yep. effectively as low as lawyers and probably solicitors. Yeah. So so what you've just said, I would challenge from an SME perspective to say, well, actually all of that, we want to do the right thing, yep. blah, 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 doesn't quite equate with you know the Supreme High Court, where insurers were clearly trying to get out of paying valid claims. Yeah, so so, so they just don't match up. I'm sorry, yeah, they just yeah, don't yeah, match no, up. And and some insurers were challenging elements. We weren't. We we were. I, I was personally involved in discussions with the regulator from pretty much day one, and we told them what we we're doing, and that was you know these policies have cover. We're paying them. And we've paid a lot of money out already. Uh, we're making interim payments as quickly as we can. These don't for these reasons, blah, blah, blah. And because of that, the FCA didn't want us involved in the Supreme Court case. That doesn't mean to say that our reputation hasn't been impacted. And, you know, like I say, I can go on and on about uh, what we've done and how we did pay out promptly and how you know we weren't one of those insurers trying to you know, wriggle out as some people say but the reality is the insurance industry's reputation has been damaged and therefore we need to do whatever we can because otherwise what's going to happen is people are not going to bother to buy insurance and then what's going to happen they're going to have a fire they're going to have a flood and they're going to be left completely without any protection and support and they're going to fall you know to the government the local authority so i agree with you absolutely in terms of uh, the damage i'm i'm embarrassed by uh, some of the behaviors but then let's be honest you and i we, we've worked together we we know what the market's like it's not unusual and unfortunately it's the lowest common denominator that tends to influence our reputation what we got to do now is fight really hard 
to rebuild. And yeah, it, it wasn't great beforehand. Let's not pretend. <laughs> um, but you know, from an even lower point, we need to do whatever we can to make people recognise the value that we bring. Can I um, ask what you both think? Because it's highly related to this um, sort of uh, reputational thing, which absolutely is linked with corporate social responsibility, as we've obviously just discussed. But what do you think of Zurich's recent add-on to flooding policies, whereby they've launched uh, trauma care for anybody who's had to claim because of a flood and has suffered from trauma because of it? What do you think of that in terms of corporate social responsibility, uh, client care, brand building, whichever way you want to spin it. Yeah, and I I think it's a really good move. I mean, years ago, we saw some American research which talked about the mental impact on people involved in in large flood claims. Clearly, uh, they have some quite dramatic incidents in the States. And therefore, I I think uh, the more that we can do to – when there's an incident, you want your customers to be looked after. You want to retain your customers. And the sad fact is that uh, a huge proportion of businesses that suffer you know, a big event don't continue to trade. Through for one reason or another, they, they end up ceasing to trade. I think uh, being able to provide additional services is great. And yeah, I think in terms of the, the various boxes that you talked about, you know, not from a tick box exercise, but in terms of improving how you're perceived, I, I, I think it, it, it scores in all of those. Could I give two sort of anecdotes or examples just to throw out there and ask for your um, your sort of thoughts on? So I am, for my sins, in the process of uh, launching a, another business, and it is all around mental health, scenario-based psychoeducation for professionals, and it's really exciting. And I've been doing a lot of research. And one of the things that I came across was the Asian Disaster Preparedness Center, who did a huge study on the 2004 tsunami. And it it looked at it from sort of the the financial and the economic impact right through to the social impact on on, uh, people with PTSD, people who had lost their jobs, lost a limb, you know, mentally couldn't go back to work or, you know, had to leave work three years later because of the psychological scarring. And one of the things that it it said uh, was that the psychological scars from the people who were involved in this tsunami will still be being seen by 2085. I mean, that's assuming people live very long, obviously. But that statistic, and I don't know where they got it from, so take it with a pinch of salt, but that statistic, I think, is very powerful. And when you put it in terms of these two events I'm about to describe, I'd really love your thoughts on, on whether the insurance industry could and should help here. So I have a friend who was in Thailand and she got a ferry from one of the, um, one of the islands back to mainland and the ferry, uh, something caught fire and the ferry sunk and they all had to jump overboard into the ocean and then wait for lifeboats. Incredibly traumatic event. And also uh, the 2016 Sri Lankan bombings, uh, the hotels that were involved in that. Uh, And actually, Graham, you'll be better placed to to talk about this because I know uh, you guys had some relation to that and you can probably give a bit more information. But the support that was then, nothing was given to Penny and she suffered with PTSD for a very long time. I know there was support given to the people affected by that bombing and it came from the sort of insurance industry. So that information, what do you think about it? How could we do more 
And how does it tie in really to what Zurich are offering? Because I know Zurich's uh, underpinned by the same people that, that the Sri Lankan bombing was underpinned by. You've raised three or four issues in there, and I was trying to write them down as uh, as you were going. And and by the way, people in Japan are likely to live far longer than anywhere else, pretty much in the world, uh, right it's now. They've got the highest, they were the lowest mortality rate in, in uh, pretty much globally. I think and it, it's uh, got a name, Iki Iki. Well, well he, he, here's here's something to edit out of this podcast, and that <laughs> in Japan they sell more adult nappies than they do to kids. So I'm um, not editing that, that out. That is an interesting sense. statistic. <laughs> it gives you a sense. Right, I'm, glad I'm not going to ask you where you got that fact from. <laughs> 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 um, uh, and, and again, and, and I'm not going to hair split with you, the, the Sri Lankan bombing was actually in 2019, so Sorry. not 2016. Just turn um, the six the other way, it's fine. So I think just to come back to where you were, Sarah, th- there's no doubt that COVID has encouraged insurers, as we speak to them, to raise that, you know, the, the, the whole concept of mental awareness has been heightened by COVID because of the, the mental health issues that it throws up around loss of loved ones, uh, confinement, et cetera, et cetera, loss of job and so on. So, so mental health as a subject has been, has been raised uh, quite considerably. I think one of the, one of the challenges that many insurers are trying to balance is how to develop CSR strategies, but at the same time, it not necessarily be just a cost center. You know, what's almost a case of what's in it for me? How can I develop something which is going to bring, you know, valuable additional benefits to to my business? And whether that is brand awareness or, or data based on the incident in terms of who's managing this and so on and so forth. If we look at, if we take an incident, for example, around around Sri Lanka, that Sri Lanka bombing, and from memory now, there were three hotels affected in Sri Lanka, in Colombo, and I think three police stations. And all told, something like about 500 uh, I think probably about five. No, sorry. I think about five hundred people were were injured, and about three hundred people were killed. The insurers that were involved on in in, the, in in underwriting those risks were very quickly on the scene. You know, with security companies that were there to uh, assist people. What we saw um, around sort of the human cost of this is that. People that were affected by by those bombings, which took place in April 2019, some were still being counselled directly over the event a year later. Some people were some people managed to recover very quickly, i.e., after sort of one or two counselling sessions, but many were affected on a on a long term basis. And I think where we see uh, an insurer's in part responsibility around developing CSR is to have a better understanding of what the human cost is to this. You know, how quickly can not we get just get the employees that were affected back to work, but if you take the case of that Sri Lankan bombing, for example, probably less than 10% of the people that were actually psychologically affected were employees. 
you know, 90% were people that just happened to be in the vicinity, were tourists or, or whatever. But so they, that, they, these people were looking for, uh, looking for some form of counselling, some form of comfort immediately post the event. And, and one of the drivers that we are trying to encourage insurers to look at is, yes, by all means, look at the employees, get the employees back to work as quickly as possible, you know, reduce your BI claims. And we were talking about BI as being a, as being an issue. But at the same time, deal with the other people, deal with the other people that were affected by the incident. You know, for example, you know, within a if you look at a typical terrorist type sort of product or a policy, most insurers will cover the peripheral damage within typically a 250 or 300 meter radius of that. So, so how can we get the insurers to pick up that mantle and deal with the less tangible aspects of, uh, you know, of these incidents? And I think that's that. What we've seen is a heightened awareness of CSR brought around by COVID, but we have also seen in the right way, or what's in it for me as the insurer? What can I, if I enhance my corporate social responsibility, what can I get back? You know, how can I convert that CSR into more customers, brand enhancement, data that's valuable to me as a business? Um, what can we do? And, and that, I think, is part of the conundrum. And that will move people away from Mike's point, which I agree with, of box ticking, you know, so because because then there's actually a there's a commercial benefit to a corporate social responsibility program, which could actually far outweigh the cost of the program itself. Yeah, I'd love your uh, both of your thoughts on that. I suppose I suppose my observation on and probably um, question to David again is that. And I know what he's like to say about AXA, but we'll, we'll ask him to give a whole market <laughs> approach. <laughs> uh, um, so you have a, I think David mentioned floods. So can CSR and claims mitigation, i.e. sort of, you know, a reduction in indemnity, can they go, are they sort of uh, ideal bed partners or because of your requirements to hit your COR, you know, to mitigate claims that actually claims mitigation through indemnity has to take priority over CSR. Can you do it equally as an insurer? Okay, so should, should I give you my views on this? And, and I think the, that there is no point having a, a conversation where we all just have a love-in and ignore the the realities of of business. So I think I'm trying to get you going. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. <laughs> so, so so the reason why we're all on the call, I think, is because you know, we all do have a commitment to CSR and want our businesses to be doing the right thing. But the reality is they are businesses. Okay, and you know, it's because when you were talking about travel insurance earlier on. I, I despair at times about travel insurance. Yeah, Mike, you've said I'm allowed to talk about the market. It's not AXA, obviously. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the, you, you can get a travel policy for like threepence halfpenny, is, is, is I would say. Yeah, you sit on the tube in the old days, we could commute, and you'd see a little advert opposite offering you a, a year's travel insurance cover for the price of a couple of pints. The, the reality is whoever is providing that is not going to be able to provide all the bells and whistles. And that's the other thing I would say in terms of, you know, 
you are a business, but also you're making a decision as a consumer. Do you want to be charged for bells and whistles and frills? Or do you want the option to have something that, quite frankly, is going to send you a check if you're lucky and and do very little more than that? So, I mean, I'm, I'm an underwriter at heart. Like I, said, I, was, I, was, I was in claims for, for nine years and loved every moment of it. But numbers is, is what I do. Yeah, working out, hopefully, how we can make money. Now, what I do is I go beyond the pure mass of thinking about you know, expected loss costs and all those sorts of elements. And I recognize that we, one, we're in a really good position to be able to help out. And that's why I think sometimes people think you know, insurers should do more than just you know, um, exercise the, the limits of, of the legally binding contract. But also there are benefits in terms of, as I've said, you're being able to maintain customers. You stop businesses from going bust because if they're bust, they're not your customer anymore. Brand. I mean, we have to be honest and say, you know, it is part of your your brand, your reputation, how you respond in these ways. So I don't think it's right that people should expect insurers to pick up any costs in any way related miles away from uh, you know the contract that somebody's chosen to take out. But I do think that morally it's right to help as much as we can, and there are some tremendous benefits from you know that are more than just the the sort of lost costs in terms of maintaining customers your brand and reputation employee satisfaction all those sorts of things and and i think maybe that hasn't been recognized as much as it could have been in the past and the good news is that people are seeing that now and therefore that is enabling them to be able to contribute more to what was previously seen as a loss cost. But you have to remember, and I get this thrown at me by claimant lawyers all the time, that we have a responsibility as you know, directors and officers of a business to the shareholders. So yeah, we're, we're not charities. We can't just go out and you know, chuck money about. And therefore, it is important that we do the right thing and also we can explain the benefits so that we are free to be able to do maybe a little bit more than the the contract strictly requires us to do. I would, this is coming back to my ethical evangelism again, so my apologies. (laughs) I would advocate that the contract and and corporate social responsibility should actually not be mutually exclusive. I think that, you know, contracts of insurance should, by choice, from the insurers – uh, include some form of corporate social responsibility, however that might look, limited as it might be. But you know, I think any form of CSR, I think, is 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 positive. And I and I guess the the sort of the proof of the pudding would be, you know, whether you know a customer would view more favourably a, a contract offer or an offer of a policy that included some form of CSR initiative versus one that didn't. And I understand the, I understand the commercial drivers are around, you know, new business, you know, cost sensitivity uh, and so on. I think where, you know, where, where we sit, you know, from, from sort of our sort of position is that I think, you know, we want to encourage however it is, we want to encourage the insurers to incorporate a some form of CSR benefit in the contract so that you can abide by the contract and you can provide some form of perhaps social 
environmental mental rehabilitation uh, alongside the what is clearly really important that the, the financial rehab of the customer because those issues themselves also drive consumer behavior back to that customer you know we we've got so we've got evidence that says if a client if your insured client is being seen through you to be offering some form of CSR, some form of initiative which is helping to kind of deal with the damage of whatever the event may be, people are drawn to their business, which gets their business back, you know, sort of on track more quickly. It could potentially reduce uh, litigation. I mean, we've got examples of events that have taken place, for example, in the US, where because the insured client has been sinned to take positive action post the event and I'm and in these cases I'm actually talking about these are specific terrorist or active assailant uh, events that have taken place on school campuses and, and and so on but because the school through its insurer is able to facilitate some form of CSR initiative we've actually seen cases where class litigation has been dropped because the business is actually trying to is, is being seen to be doing the right thing it's so it's not just about the the, the, the you know indemnity and, and and getting us back to where we were operationally it, there's there's a, there's a slightly wider rim to the to the level of service that's being provided and not one and, and I'm not talking from our perspective you know whether it's mental social environmental the cost needn't be because it's the law of large numbers the cost needn't be prohibitive to an insured an insured client, and, and again, you know, we are of a view that says the insurer is there. You know, you are you are you are present. You are the go-to person immediately after the the aftermath of whatever the event is. You know, you make sure that your family and your possessions are safe. You make sure that your friends are safe, and then when the drama has calmed down you're looking for your insurance policy. And so you are you're engaging with a customer right at the very outset of this. And 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 we think there's an opportunity for insurers to to embrace a CSR uh, initiative, you know, within the the structure of their of their contract. I think that's a great idea. I think it I think it's a fantastic idea. I suppose the the other sort of just adding on to that is you would an insurer so the, the opportunity that provides, it provides a differentiation in a product, number one. Would an insurer, you know, the real innovative insurers would perhaps buy that in and embed it in their contracts and then just have a relationship with the provider and not have it as, a, uh, an, as an add-on? Because then that would come to David's valid points around building brand, being very serious about CSR, actually having it embedded in their, their, their products. You know, that I think is all on the positive side. I think at the same the same period for, again, through an insurer lens is that if they're buying in that product so it's embedded, you know, and depending on whatever product it was put in, could that make them uncompetitive when they built that into their pricing in what is a extremely competitive market? And I think that's always the balance coming back to what we've all talked about around, you know, David's, again, valid point around they are businesses they have sort of returns, you know, obligations to shareholders. You know, they need to hit their sort of financial targets. They need to grow top line new business. 
deliver sort of you know, best in class uh, loss ratios. And all that is sort of weighing, you know, how much CSR can we sort of try and pull in? But I think the real innovative insurer will grasp it and say, actually, you know, all the benefits which have been articulated outweigh the fact that we might not write as much new business because our brand, our profile, you know, the halo effect should get us to where we need to get to anyway. So I think it's a great idea. I think it's a, I think it's a, it's an opportunity for insurer insurers to, to sort of, you know, seize, seize the opportunity personally. I think from, from our perspective, you know, I mean, we, we, we talk about trying to, it's a bit of a cliche, but we talk about trying to create sort of um, solidarity, if you like, in the, in the risk pool, in, you know, in, in the risk takers, you know, to, to get, you know, and, and what, I mean, in an ideal world, you would have, you know, all the insurers take, take their, uh, you know, a step forward at, at the same time and, and create sort of equilibrium sort of in the market space. You know, that's never going to happen. As you say, Mike, you know, some insurers are happier to grasp the nettle than others in, in different ways, whether it's through product innovation or not. I, I think one of the things that we that we also see from a in terms of benefiting insurers is that there is very little, and, and, and I can only talk with any experience around the mental health issues here. I can't talk about environmental or educational, for example. But from a mental health perspective, we know that after many of these events, in fact. 99.9% of all major events, whether it's a, a flood, an earthquake, a terrorist attack, whatever it may be, there is no accumulated data available to anybody around the human cost of that event. What was the human cost of that event? Um, no one knows. You know, an, an example that I have used, um, we have a... Um, a uh, clinical social worker that works for us. Um, her daughter was at the uh, Ariana Grande concert. You may recall a, yeah. a couple of years oh, yeah. ago in Manchester at the GMEX. If you just take that as an event, and, and I could name a thousand events, after that event took place, what did the local authority, the insurer of the GMEX, uh, the government do to help the individuals affected, traumatised by that event, young kids, most of them, the short answer is nothing. No one knows how many people were affected. Nobody knows the cost on business of those people because of, you know, nobody has any sense of what the, the number of people that were affected, the ethnicity of those people affected, the period over which they were affected, how severely they were affected. No one knows. And we think that kind of information is socially responsible, not just for local government, but it's also, it's, it's really vital information that as an insurer, you could feed back into your healthcare department, into your actuarial department, and, and look at some of your pricing models to get a better grasp of what's going on. And to Sarah's earlier point of, you know, the tsunami, I have no idea because we were not involved in it, but that, that tsunami will undoubtedly affect thousands of people for, for many years I, I, I'm sure but nobody can tell nobody can actually tell you and, I, and and we see that as a shortcoming and I'm talking now with my my with my underwriting hat on 
I just believe that as as underwriters and as sort of custodians of the care of those people that are affected, we should be we should have that information. And in order to have that information, you've got to have a service of some description which allows you to gather it. And then from a brand perspective afterwards, and we've seen this in many places globally, if you are the person that has the information, and again, I will I can only talk around the mental health issue, you then become the de facto expert on mental health issues in you know in that country after an event. You know, you've you your your publicity department are being are getting calls from journalists to provide informed commentary on on events and so on. So there's there's a lot of soft benefits that can come out of, of, of CSR. However, it's manufactured and, and distributed and bought into by by the public. I definitely think that there is a gap, but I think we need to do two things. One, we need to be clear about who should be responsible for what. I don't think uh, you know, the local authority or you know, the National Health Service not doing something means insurers should instantly pick it up. But I also think what we need to do is we need to be able to put a value, put a price on those soft benefits. The, the reason I say that is because, you know, if, if we are going to include certain things, so, so an hour of uh, time with a medical professional costs money. And therefore, if you need to build that into a product, you need to build that into the pricing. And you know, as somebody's already said, you know, that can make you uncompetitive. I mean, I've seen you know, motor uh, premiums, you know, people will change insurer for, for 50 pence. You know, I've seen a half percent adjustment in rate will apparently impact your conversion stats by 7%. It's that price sensitive. Now, that's motor, which is particularly price sensitive. But yeah, you, you get the gist. So I think what we need to do is we need to be establishing the value of these soft benefits I mean, we need to be doing some things anyway, because it's the right thing to do. And I've talked about, you know, employee satisfaction and brand and all those sorts of things. But if we can actually put a value on these soft benefits, it's then easier to sell them. I like the idea of there being a, let's call it a CSR element in the policy contract, because, you know, one of the other things we've learned over the last 18 months is we shouldn't have uncertainty. People should know what's going to be paid and what isn't. So, you know, CSR, if, if there are elements that we might regard as CSR that we're definitely going to, to deal with, then let's, let's build them into the policy contract. Let's work out the value of them because that will then help us sell that product, which might be a little bit more expensive to the general public. I also think there's an element of which vertical you're talking about. You've just mentioned motor there, but presumably in terrorism policies or political violence, kidnap ransom, activist, whatever it might be, this type of movement has, you know, an awful lot of benefit. Kidnap and ransom is such a specialist line. Uh, you know, nobody really sells kidnap and ransom. Nobody buys kidnap and ransom other than certain real specialists. Unless you're going to get kidnapped. Well, exactly, exactly. It tends to be foreign diplomats and the like. And terrorism, from a UK perspective, is managed generally uh, by Paul Ree. I mean, I know there are other Lloyds-based facilities, but the, the full cover, including chemical and biological attacks, um, is only available, I think, via Paul Ree. So, But it would be useful for them to have that information. But again, I mean, it's, it's, it's thrown in on household covers, you know, terrorism cover. It's not charged for. So if you're going to be providing 
additional services. And if you're almost going to be setting yourself up to you know, try and fill in the shortcomings of other bodies, um, that's, that's going to get expensive. Very off the cuff anecdote. My daughter told me this morning that if somebody wanted to kidnap her, all they'd have to do was paint a white van in the Hogwarts Express colours and she'd be right in there, which concerned me on many levels. <laughs> Firstly, that she's thinking of it. And secondly, she's planned her own kidnap. Yes. So I shall refer her to uh, kidnap and ransom policies should I need to. I think that has been so interesting, guys. I'm I'm really grateful and I love uh, some of the interaction and uh, uh, prodding, Mike, that, that I've seen you doing because it well, makes for sorry, a lively sorry, debate. Just- just, just finish off, and David, this will make David smile, and it just shows sort of how far CSR has come, and even from my own personal experience. So uh, when I was working with David at AXA, and David will remember the day better than me, so I think it was the 2006 or seven floods, you know, some very bright individuals within AXA said, you know, why don't we send a burger van yep. to the flood site and actually just serve people burgers or... Bacon hot sandwiches, dog, it hot, was. Bacon hot tea, sandwiches. hot tea. Yeah. And that was, what, was that, was that 2006, David? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's what, 15 years ago. And at the time, I would have to say the general, the general view across most of the office, not, not exclusively, was what the hell are we doing sending a burger van when people's pro- properties are half underwater? So to me, that's, that for me personally, that's a classic where CSR has come on so much further because we just focused on well who's going to want to eat a burger you know when actually they'd rather have sort of you know drying out sort of stuff but again that you know that goes back what 15 years and I just think it's come an awful long way but you know that you know 15 years ago that was that was the case. Anyway. See, the, the, the joy of the van was it got through so a a big insurer beginning with A in the UK have a a battle bus so, you know, big coach fitted with all sorts of things, you know, satellite, telephones, all that sort of thing. And it couldn't get through because of the flooding. Whereas our little van did, got through, set up in a you know, a car park in, in a sort of shopping area. And then at one point in time, it was actually visited by Prince Charles, our future wow. king. It's incredible. There you go. Take it all back about the van. Both yeah. of you. <laughs> but it, but it, was, it was bacon sandwiches. We couldn't stretch to burgers, Mike. <laughs> I'd go with bacon sandwiches every time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with or without brown sauce. Got to have HP sauce yeah. on, your, on your bacon sandwich, though. Ketchup. Every time. Um, uh, no, that's really great, guys. Thank you so much for your time. Good, good to see you. Good see you. Cheers. See you later. Take Bye. care. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you have enjoyed what you have heard, have any questions or feedback, please leave us a review and we will be sure to get back to you. If you would like further information on how Boston Tullis Group can support your business, or if you would like to join us on an episode, please do not hesitate to contact us.